0: Uh, These are excerpts from the article, The Shape of the World, by American writer John Steinbeck from London in July of 1943, reporting on the buildup of American armed forces in Britain. The soldiers fight and work under a load of worry, and almost universally you find, not a fear of the enemy, but a fear of what is going to happen after the war. They fight under a banner of four unimplemented freedoms, four words. And when anyone in authority tries to give these freedoms implements and methods, the soldiers hear that man assaulted and dragged down. They would like freedom from want. That means that the little farm in Connecticut is safe from foreclosure. That means that the job left is there waiting. And not only waiting, but continues while the children grow up. That means there will be schools and either savings to take care of illness in the family or medicine available without savings. Talking to many soldiers, it is the worry that is most impressive. Is the country to be taken over by special interests? Is inflation to be permitted by a few people so a few people will get rich through it? Are fortunes being made while these men get fifty dollars a month? Will they go home to a country destroyed by greed? The four freedoms define what the GI wants, but unless some machinery, some foundation, some clear method is shown, He is likely to believe only in the freedom which uh, Anatoly France defined, the equal freedom of rich and poor to sleep under bridges. Anyone who can reassure these soldiers will put a weapon in their hands of incredible strength. People use uh, the New Deal as a shorthand for the packages and programs passed by Congress to combat the Great Depression and save capitalism by making a deal with the working class. Some of it stuck, like the National Labor Relations Board and Social Security, and many, like universal health care, never came to fruition. What's less commonly referenced in the discourse are the principles upon which these policies were based. The four freedoms. The freedom of speech and of expression. The freedom of worship. The freedom from want and the freedom from fear. Roosevelt knew that these were fairly radical ideas. Freedom from fear in particular is a bold statement when you think of it, and FDR really never backed down from these radical ideas. Currently, the Biden administration and most of the U.S. House and Senate are trying to pass several large and important pieces of legislation, a strong infrastructure spending package, a progressive $3.5 trillion 10-year budget reconciliation bill, which includes much-needed social programs to support workers and families, like universal pre-K, paid leave, Medicare expansion, and so on. Not to mention the separate PRO Act bill, which would be the strongest measure in support of working people since the NLRB. For me, these are 21st century manifestations of the four freedoms. And we could learn a lot from studying the political, social, and cultural environment of the 1930s and 40s in the United States when these pillars were first introduced to inform our current struggle. So the best way to do that is to contact uh, our comrade and friend, Professor Harvey J.K., um, he is the author of *The Fight for the Four Freedoms*: What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great. So I welcome back uh, to the Highlands Bunker Podcast, the Professor Emeritus of Democracy and Social Justice at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, our friend Harvey J. K. How are you? I am.
1: I am thrilled to have accepted. I'm so glad you invited me. You, look, I, I told you before we started uh, recording. I was really looking forward to tonight. I I really do enjoy our conversations. I. Yeah. I, I do, too. I think you do a great job. If I, if I knew more about Delaware, I should probably learn more about Delaware. I'd be listening to you all the time. Uh, you do a great job. It's a very strange place. It's
0: a place where uh, there's a monument to the Four Freedoms downtown in H.B. DuPont Park
1: i mean i need you to send me a picture of that if i you think i did I
0: you me. might have it in your email but if you don't okay. i will check because i uh it's right near a bus stop i used to use all the time but yeah oh, the idea that it's in it's in a park called named after h.b dupont i think is um that's quite yeah, a dialect. right that's
1: a dialectic there's a a contradiction as much as anything else. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah absolutely <that's laughs> oh, man absolutely um so for for
0: background can you just speak a bit about how FDR developed the idea of the Four Freedoms and what they were meant to represent, both in the time of grave challenges that were at hand, uh, but also as concepts to support and inspire sort of continual generational achievements um, for you know the universal flourishing of people.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's a good question, and I I do want to come back to this question of <clears throat> sort of an economic bill of rights as part of that, but bef- but as a in terms of where did it come from. Um, FDR gave a speech, I think it was 1911, 1912, to the People's Forum in New York City. Uh, a fairly progressive venue, is my sense. And in, that, in this speech, which is terribly flawed, if anyone reads it without any kind of annotation associated with it, they, they could get the wrong picture of his thinking. But in there, you get the feeling that this young politician is desperately trying to make his way through On the one hand, socialism of the Eugene Debs variety, and on the other hand, the progressivism of the likes, say, of Teddy Roosevelt and Robert La Follette, and he's trying to work his way through as well, knowing that if he goes too much in one direction, that is towards what we would call socialism, he will immediately be accused of the worst, the worst things, and he and clearly, it's progressivism that he's going to move towards. However, he's trying to find a way, as he puts it, beyond freedom understood as merely individualism. And, and this is a speech that I'm of 1912. And what he talks about, he comes up with this very, very strange concept. But you can see how he's struggling to develop something beyond it. He calls it liberty of the community. And when he explains it, what he means is Basically, why the hell do we allow corporations to make use of resources however they want? Does not the community have an interest in terms of its well-being and its future? And it's a, it's a really interesting thing. He's trying to work through this, and he actually speaks out loud about if he goes in one direction, he'll be accused of being this. If he goes in the other direction, he'll fall into the trap of the, of the sort of laissez-faire kind of economics. Anyhow, as time goes by and he serves in the Wilson administration, Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and in the 1920s he becomes, best way of put it, he becomes educated in the 1920s in the wake of his confrontation with polio and his suffering of polio. And what that means is that he's basically housebound as he's hoping and trying to transcend the polio. But in this period of time, Eleanor Roosevelt, because of his disability, is now liberated to get out there on her own. Okay, and they've been married for some years now. And she becomes involved in, amongst other things, in New York City, the Women's Trade Union League, which is an organization of socialist immigrant organizers, on the one hand, and prominent do-gooders in the New York area, on the other. And she actually becomes good friends with a host of, the, of Jewish socialist, Jewish, Jewish socialist, immigrant textile organizers. Uh, Rose Schneiderman is probably the best known of, of that group. And amongst the various people she brings back to the Roosevelt home, either the, the, the place they have in New York City or up to Hyde Park, is a group of these organizers. And FDR has already had to work with labor unions in World War I. And he has a certain appreciation of what labor unions can uh, uh, must do need to do and how to negotiate with them but in this instance he's meeting women socialist labor organizers and they really do educate him to the to the if you like the troubles the challenges the things that needed to be confronted growing up in poverty or on the lower east side of manhattan those kinds of things and when he, runs for pre- when he runs for governor in 1928 and then for re-election in 1930, his speeches already indicate that he knows he must speak to working people. This is New York State, after all, New York City. And you can see the degree to which he's moving and what, for lack of a better way of putting it, is a social democratic direction. Though for FDR, this is the remaking of what, what we would call also liberalism. And, and now I'm going to get to this point of this economic bill of rights in 1932 when he's running for president he is laying out bit by bit and and all too many historians really under undervalue underestimate uh, you know they just don't give a lot of a lot of attention to these things he ran in 32 even before he coined the term new deal or had one of his speechwriters coin it he's running on a decidedly social democratic platform i mean he's talking about the equivalent of about social security he's talking about Addressing the needs of the environment. He's talking about, I mean, all the things we associate with late 20th century in America liberalism, but it's really a kind of social democratic environmentalist kind of, of uh, vision. And in September, October of 1932, late in the campaign, and of course he's running against Herbert Hoover, who and Herbert Hoover is, is in deep trouble because the depression just continues to worsen and worsen and worsen. But FDR gives a speech out in San Francisco at the Commonwealth Club. And in this speech, he says it's time, it's, he doesn't say rewrite the Declaration of Independence. He says it's time to, to add to the declaration, the promise of the declaration, equality, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, a new declaration, a declaration of economic rights. Okay? And what empowers him is his sense that life Liberty and the pursuit of happiness is really a social democratic promise to live. It's not like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is just a late 18th century term coined by a bunch of merchants and lawyers and uh, and plantation slave owners. His his idea is that this is a promise made to Americans, and that in the course of the 19th century, the promise really was trampled upon by the growth of big industrial corporations the big trusts you know the big capitalist operations and he says the time is to go back to the declaration reclaim the promise and compose a new declaration for the 20th century which he calls it economic declaration of rights and this is there's an arc in his presidency and the arc is that economic declaration of rights the new deal and all of those things involved in it, which we can talk about And then his speech in 1941, January 1941, which is meant to be a kind of global um, argument, but very much, if you like, uh, standing upon the ideals of the Declaration, of the Gettysburg Address by Lincoln, and of his own notion of an Economic Declaration of Rights. He proposes those four freedoms, which he returns to in 1944, as you probably know, in his call for an economic Bill of Rights. That is, he's shifted a bit. He's now saying, look, we've had a Bill of Rights in this country, and the time is to add to that Bill of Rights. He calls first, he says, a second Bill of Rights, and then he does call it the Economic Bill of Rights. And the Economic Bill of Rights is truly a radical and social democratic vision for America, for the United States. And by the way, I mean, it, it had a very powerful impact On the labor movement in 1944, which rallied not just to the FDR fourth campaign, but also to the vision of an economic bill of rights, and they created, you know, a a political action committee out of the CIO, and even the AFL, the more conservative coalition federation of unionists, they rapidly endorsed the economic bill of rights. So, where does it come from? It comes from his understanding, in one sense, of American history. His education by his Jewish women socialist labor organizers, his own experience working with labor unions, and, and of course his commitment to the original progressive politics of Teddy Roosevelt, Robert La Follette, and, and many others. And I think, that's, I, think, I think it derives from all of that. Some people would tell you it comes from the fact that he did actually suffer polio, and it made him very well aware that, that we must depend upon each other if we're going to move ahead and get ahead. Yeah, but as you say, I think that
0: the, the the key event in that is some of the speeches he was giving prior to, you know, when he, when he was, you know, even prior to, was it was 19, like you said, 1911, 1912. So he, he's already sort of... Uh, Putting these things together in his brain, how they're going to work. Like if I go this way, if I go that way. So it's clearly he's already thinking about them. I think we talked about uh, about it once before that the the, the struggle with polio sort of um, focused the mind. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah, but, a way, but, that's a very
0: good way of putting it.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So, well, let's let's talk a little bit about the labor alliances. Well, maybe we'll jump ahead and then kind of go back, maybe to sort of the early New Deal, because I do want to talk about sort of the different environment. Uh, once the war began, because I, I did sense, you know, shifting alliances and sort of different tactics from the New Deal, from to the Civil War or to the uh, World War One, World War Two, excuse me. But I, I have a couple notes about these labor alliances, and I, and I want to know your thoughts because we get caught up in a lot of these, um, in a lot of these discussions today. So specifically, um, John L. Lewis, uh, Miners Union. Uh, a very big, very, very, huge figure for a very long time. Um, Wasn't an, was an ally in, it seems to me, all of the domestic uh, workers rights stuff. Uh, but come to the war, you know, he was also an isolationist, probably had had Axis or, or Nazi sympathies even. Um, but but yeah, was... I, I'm not sure about that. Okay, I, I, that, maybe I'm going I a wouldn't. Too I, wouldn't far. I don't. He was I, certainly I, an isolationist, I suppose, Yeah, he know. did
1: not like. Actually, like many a, a prominent figure in the 30s, he did not want the United States to re-enter any kind of European war, or for that matter, war anywhere.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and and, and you know, there was obviously in that you you track. Um, through all of these years, the the increases in in folks in labor unions, and it continues to to rise and rise. And there's it's just yeah, in, you know what is interesting. May I just
1: say about John Lewis is that southern, sort of Scotch Irish and Welsh, American working people, and even even the affluent and rich, they were very they actually were pro British. So it's unusual that Lewis himself, which. I mean, I, I believe the name John Lewis was a Welsh name, but I, I could be wrong on that. But it's it's sort of strange that he is actually hostile to the idea of American involvement in the war. Um, he, the Irish-Americans in Boston and New York and elsewhere were hostile to the idea of, of any involvement with Britain in, in against Germany in the war. And as you probably know, Ireland rem, itself remained a neutral, still, pa- a neutral country. Still a problem um, today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... So the thing is that but it is a little surprising, but you're right about his uh, his resistance hostility to the idea that weren't to the point where he actually breaks ranks with labor in 1940 and endorses the Republican candidate for president.
0: Yeah, and, and again, I think uh, the other example I, I use is a little less um, impactful, I think, but as labor participation goes up. Uh, especially uh during the war and, and as it was winding down the uh participation and membership of things like the American Legion go way up as well which are uh, obviously still you know reactionary conservative sort of groups uh but it's just interesting that these these things were a, they were dealt with in a way where the 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 labor pa- the the power of the working class still you know w- was still very high and even And and again, I have some notes here about how this would impact uh, black workers, uh, immigrant workers, that type of thing. But but still, you you cannot deny the fact that uh, these labor uh, gains and labor organizing was a real driver of 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 this.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe the key driver. Yeah, just to name the labor labor leaders of the day is like a, a hall of fame. How many people will ever remember the name of labor leaders of these last 40 years, right? right. Other than hopefully we, Sarah Nelson, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, so far so good. Yeah, okay. she's, she's great. But it is the case that, look, John Lewis, Walter Ruther and his brothers, um, Sidney Hillman, A. Philip Randolph. I mean, that those four figures alone were makers of history on a grand scale during the years of the 30s into the 40s, and for a. a. Philip Randolph well into the 1960s, and Ruther as well into the 1960s. So it was a day of labor, labor growth and development of organizing, the creation of a second labor co- a federation the, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, which emerges out of the AFL because of the feeling the AFL is, is too conservative, far too conservative, in fact. But uh, it's the day of labor, really. Yeah. And I, I think I, I want to also
0: bring in, um, you know, the racial aspect, because I think people are very uh, sort of they're sensitive to it because uh, a few, you know, some New Deal programs were sort of have carve outs uh, and people, you know, are kind of sensitive to that. I, I just want to read a little paragraph here from your book, and then we can kind of talk about how um, a lot of these things were integrated in a, in a sort of a, in a more um, uh, universal way. So uh, this is from page 139. Prominent African-Americans called for initiatives as well. A January 1944 conference of black leaders that included A. Philip Randolph, Walter White, and Mary McLeod Bethune issued a, quote, declaration by the Negro voter. That, along with reiterating their support for the war effort and insisting that victory must crush Hitlerism both at home and abroad, and demanded, quote, full citizenship for the Negro people. Furthermore, it declared that, quote, The party or candidate who refuses to help control prices, or fails to support the extension of Social Security, or refuses to support a progressive program for post-war employment, or opposes an enlarged and unsegregated program of government-financed housing, or seeks to destroy organized labor, is as much an enemy of the Negro as he who would prevent the Negro from voting. And I just think that's indicative of of sort of um, the the buy in and uh, a- across all different aspects of labor and and worker organizing. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about um, how A. Philip Randolph, particularly with the uh, the Pullman porters and 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 his ba- and his background and the way that he worked with the administration. Um, pretty clo- you know fairly closely he was probably one one of the uh, other you know uh, most famous labor leaders i would say of the time oh
1: yeah uh, absolutely deserves a statue in washington dc lo- it would be great well, he to has have one a in the show. there's one in the he has a bust in the train station i can tell you that oh yeah and i guess that's because he was the pullman porter guy absolutely yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay so so a philip Randolph, i believe came out of florida okay comes to I believe comes to new york the point is that he emerges as the leader of The Pullman porters to understand these were the men who served on the trains as waiters in the in the dining cars, as the guys who made the beds and service, the sleeping cars, which were the Pullman cars, really. Um, And it's actually an interesting role that he plays because he leads the first, a very dynamic union, Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. And it's the first of the African-American unions in the American Federation of Labor. And I can't emphasize enough that AFL was, AFL is fairly conservative. I mean, the AFL actually had a position of not getting involved in politics for many years. They thought labor had to do it for itself, basically. You had to organize workers, workers had to confront their bosses. You don't get involved in the political realm. And keep in mind that that kind of goes along with the whole idea that government wasn't supposed to involve itself in the corporate realm. You might, At least that's the, 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 the theory. Well, anyhow, um, but it is the AFL that brings in the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Now, I want to note that in the early 30s, as labor really exploded in numbers, as unions took off because of what was then called the National Industrial Recovery Act of 1933, people often forget that it wasn't only the National Labor Relations Act that empowers workers. In 1933, FDR signed into law the National Industrial Recovery Act, which was supposed to be The law that empowered workers to organize okay, and be uh, an industrial democracy, basically, collective bargaining rights. Companies found their way around it, but nevertheless, it really led to an explosion in the ranks of labor. But the AFL leadership didn't know how to respond to it. In fact, we often talk about the the racism that prevailed in the AFL, when in fact... The unions that were predominantly, say, Jewish, Italian, but and especially you know, the Eastern Southern European unions, the industrial unions from you know, the steel workers, the rubber workers, the auto workers, those kinds of workers, they wanted into this AFL. And the AFL didn't know how to handle the numbers. They didn't want these ethnics mixing with their more, you know, if you are like, Anglo, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant unionists. So they created what they called, I think it was of like federated or associated locals and it was you know it was kind of uh its own kind of ethnocentrism on the part of the 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 afl leadership however however workers were not going to be deterred and in the course of 1934 in 1935 there were massive strikes in the textile industries in the industrial uh, operations in pittsburgh akron ohio toledo and elsewhere in the midst of all this, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters emerges, and they become a very significant union led by this man, A. Philip Randolph, who was and would always remain a socialist, which is an important something important. But it's also the case the United Auto Workers came to be led by uh, by the Ruther brothers, Walter Ruther, they, who were socialists. Um, strangely enough, the one who was not a socialist of these of that cohort is John L. Lewis. Okay. And John L. Lewis, strangely enough, is the one who brought communist organizers in to help organize the new industries. I mean, these are dynamic and tumultuous times. Well, the best thing I can tell you is that FDR quickly appreciated the degree to which his own elections depended upon labor support. Because there were other movements that could could readily have threatened FDR. And uh, in his efforts to be to win reelection in 1936, um, one of them was was a movement threatened by Huey Long, okay, from Louisiana, who started out an ally of FDR but turned on FDR. Father Coughlin, the Catholic priest who was born in Canada and became the foremost radio figure, he was like the Rush Limbo of his day. And you had these kinds of figures who had their own movements developing, and these movements were not necessarily hostile to the New Deal, but in their own way, they expected certain kinds of things of FDR, and he did not always produce those very kinds of things, and they were were prepared to turn on him, which they did. But the labor movement was far more significant in, in the sense of rallying voters. And also, here's the other part about it, is that in the midst of all this, there emerges the begins as the committee of industrial organizations turns into the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, the AFL-CIO was not a unified force in the 30s because the CIO, I think the unions were actually kicked out of the AFL and they created their own CIO. They began as a committee originally in the AFL. They don't actually reunite until 1955. Well, in the meantime, the CIO was absolutely committed not only To the cause of labor in the narrowest sense, but also to interracial unionism, okay, to organizing women. I mean, they were going to organize on a decidedly progressive basis. And here again, here's the irony. A. Philip Randolph, who headed up the Black Union, Brotherhood of Sleeping Girl Porters, did not pull the Brotherhood out of the FFL to join the CIO, which would have seemed the natural place to go. In fact, he stayed in, probably because he, he felt like he owed the AFL something for having brought the first black union, his union, in. But it's, it's this kind of dynamism that FDR comes to appreciate. Now, there's no doubt that in Congress there was the great group of senators like Robert LaFalla Jr. of Wisconsin, George Norris of Nebraska, and most especially significant Robert F. Wagner of New York, of New York State. And Wagner was really the pilot of the New Deal. So every major bill that FDR was hoping to see make its way through Congress, it was that Wagner had his hand in it in making sure it happened during the 30s. The one bill that that really was, if you like, his own, that he really pushed and bears his name in at least in everyday parlance is the National Labor Relations Act, also known as the Wagner Act of 1936 which was written especially to overcome the difficulties with the original National Industrial Re- Relation—sorry, National Industrial Recovery Act that had supposedly empowered workers, but companies had found their way around it. And FDR signed that into law. Now, what, what's important here is that this really unites the FDR administration and labor in a, in a truly, it cements a relationship. And the reason I say cements is labor was already firmly aligned with the administration. But this placed government, the National Labor Relations Act, the this Wagner Act behind labor. In other words, it wasn't just saying, here's the law, you can do all these things. The point was by setting up the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, it placed government behind the efforts. So in other words, if labor was blocked, they could turn to government To intervene, not to mediate, to truly intervene to guarantee those rights. And this becomes a really important force, which by the way, which is why later in 1947 the Taft-Hartley Act that was passed by a Republican Congress was so important to the Republican and corporate ambitions to weaken the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, The National Labor Relations Act would not have allowed really for right to work states. The Taft Hartley Act allowed for right to work states, those kinds of things. So here's A. Philip Randolph, okay, this very prominent Black labor and civil rights leader. And the war effort begins before the United States is in the war. Okay, war breaks out in 1939. War is already underway in various parts of the world, especially in East Asia. But in 1939, of course, Hitler attacks Poland, World War II begins and soon enough of course france will fall and britain will be will have to endure a blitzkrieg okay the 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 bombing of london and other british cities and the british are running out of money and fdr in december 1940 announces that it's time for the united states to turn itself into the arsenal of democracy and create a lend-lease program to defend britain to enable Britain to withstand the German um, possible invasion, but decidedly this this bombing, these raids on on British cities. So, okay, here's here's what happens. Randolph sees an opportunity. The opportunity was this. The defense industries are already revving up. The problem is that these corporations and all too many of the labor unions that were in these these industrial enterprises were, were racist. They were limiting black employment, and even when there was black employment, they were limiting the employment to the kind of the, the maintenance workers, you know, the housekeeping kinds of, of tasks in any kind of factory. So Randolph Randolph hears this speech in January 1944, the Four Freedom Speech, when FDR is calling for the U.S. to become an arsenal of democracy, but also telling Americans we will not give up what we've accomplished in the course of the New Deal. What we need to do is envision a world beyond war, which, is, which witnesses in America and the world characterized by four fundamental human freedoms. Randolph hears the speech and within two weeks comes up with the idea that he's going to organize a March on Washington. Is this kind of thing you were hoping I would refer to? Okay. So the March on Washington movement begins and what Randolph announces is that there will be a march. He's going to organize 10,000 African-Americans to march in Washington later in the spring and early summer and it's interesting to note that he said this would be a all blacks only march he did not want whites in this march probably because he wanted this to be blacks pursuing their own liberation you might say okay it's kind of a first, kind of a basic kind of black power it's not black power but it's that kind of thing yes yes so he announces this and he then, and keep in mind the, the Brotherhood of sleeping car porters, one thing about that union is that they're constantly traveling. These workers, they're going from city to city. So wherever they go, they can get off the train and seek out black fraternities and sororities, black churches. I mean, they can launch an organizing drive. Like no other union could launch an organizing drive. They could take it from New York to LA. Okay. And they quickly begin to, to, to instigate and cultivate and mobilize and organize this movement. And they have sort of like demonstration demonstrations well before the March on Washington. What I mean is they're going to they have their own demonstrations in, in Midwestern and, and some other cities. Well, as this is developing, there are those who get seriously worried about 10,000 blacks marching in Washington. Let's not forget Washington, D.C., ever since the Woodrow Wilson administration, was a segregated city. Segregated. And the fear uh, as it as it entered the White House was that if blacks are marching, they will be attacked. There would be little to protect them from white protesters marching against them. And I can imagine they even imagined a police riot against these black protesters. So FDR asks Eleanor... Randolph was known to the White House. He had been to the White House before, but Eleanor was the closer person to to Randolph. And he he asked Eleanor to go to speak to Randolph and talk him out of doing the march. Now, we don't know if she really went into meetings with him and said, come on, you really have to call off the march. Or she said, you know, it'd be nice if you call. We don't know how she presented it to him. I at least don't know. But Randolph makes it clear that he sh- he should return to the White House and make it known to FDR that he was not calling off any march. So as time passes, FDR realizes he has only one choice, and that is have a one on one or one on, you know, a small meeting in the Oval Office with Randolph and any other leaders who would accompany him and basically schmooze Randolph and try to talk him out of holding the march. Now. Randolph comes to the White House. We know his the, the major figure who accompanies him is Walter White, who you a name you mentioned a little while ago. Walter White was the head of the NAACP. And they're in the they they arrive at the White House, and you know they're schmoozing a bit. And their goal was to demand that FDR desegregate the defense industries, that he provide for black involvement in the defense industries. And also, originally, the plan was to desegregate the American army, mil- the military generally, but the army in particular, because blacks were limited in their roles in, in, the, in the services, despite the fact that in every war before that, they had played a major role in helping win those conflicts. So they come to the White House. And by the time they're in the White House, it's fairly clear that their main goal is to desegregate the defense industries. And eventually, it, they can't avoid the subject, FDR says, I understand you're going to bring a march to Washington. Now, this, is, this is the version that's told. And FDR says to Randolph, uh, how many people are you planning on bringing? And by the way, this is like a theater almost that's taking place, is my sense of what's going on in the Oval Office, because FDR knew the number that was announced. However. Randolph has already been fairly successful in the organizing efforts through the, through the his unions you know initiatives and instead of hearing the number 10,000 fdr hears randolph say 100,000 and and it's told that fdr was a little taken you know a little astounded a little he sort of pulls back and he leans over to white and says what did i just hear and walter white said 100,000 and that's when fdr leans back and he said well i think we ought to do something about that and and basically they work out this arrangement that fdr will sign an executive order that will basically say that the defense industries must open employment to african americans and then pushed a little bit further by randolph and white he also signs a second executive order creating the fair employment practice commission which is going to be a federal commission that will oversee the desegregation of the defense industries. By the way, this opened up the defense industries not only to black workers, but also guaranteed, or at least assured the possibility of Jewish and other workers securing, you know, opportunities in these industries if they happen to have been um, uh, discriminated against. Now, after the meeting, it's all very interesting. Everyone likes to say, well, you know, shows you how Randolph, you know, pushed FDR. And there's no doubt he did, but, Randolph told either in a letter or, you know, he told someone of what some relative or, or friends this. He said, I knew before I went in the Oval Office that we were going to get what we were asking for, that the president would not have brought us in there to say no. Okay. He needed the moment because what he had to do is if If the Southern white supremacists who basically chaired the committees of Congress, the Democratic Southern white supremacists, they chaired the committees in Congress because they had the most seniority. He had to be able to say, look, I had no choice. So this becomes this famous line of his that based on this episode, you know, when committees of reformers come to the White House demanding action on their cause, he would say eventually would say to them. I agree with you. You've got to make me do it, which is to say, I I have to be in a position to say I had no choice on some of these things. And Randolph and, and FDR had that kind of understanding. The March on Washington, of course, did not take place. It remained a movement significant enough that after the war, by the way, Randolph pushed Truman into signing finally the desegregation of the American military. But even more significant in American memory is of course the 1963 march on Washington, which, be, which we know of for the fact that Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous speech, the I Have a Dream speech. But of course, the march had, was not organized by King. He was invited to be a speaker. The march was organized by A. Philip Randolph and his, probably his, his major lieutenant would have been uh, Bayard Rustin. Bayard Rustin really handled the organizing initiatives. Uh, but it's also the case just again i want to bring ruther back into it so much of the money that went into enabling people to get to washington and two hundred and fifty thousand white and black americans went and marched in a march called the march on washington for jobs and freedom walter ruther and the uaw essentially underwrote the cost of the buses that brought people to washington by the way again for the record the uaw under ruther underwrote just about every single major social movement at the outset of the night in the 1960s march on washington movement the students for democratic society um the national organization of women's early meetings all of this stuff is essentially f- funded in part by the uaw so uh so there's this arc if you like again from the 30s to the 60s
0: yeah i'd like to switch it to a little bit uh and, and kind of draw pa- some parallels to to the present day i think i can't remember if we we're recording yet but i mentioned that you know We've had these conversations about leadership, and you hear the story about uh, FDR basically from his office uh, sort of making deals and, and, and doing what he could, Wagner in, in, in the Senate. Um, there was all sorts of um, sort of administrative, bureaucratic fights going on, um, even—and and maybe you can touch on this too—even um, in popular media, uh, in the Saturday Evening Post— uh, everything's getting pushed. Everybody's on message. You know, you're, you're getting this message. This is what we're doing. Um, every uh, every issue sort of got incorporated into it. I was really fascinated um, to find out that um, there was a there was a huge controversy over overseas soldiers ab- abroad voting, and that became that be that got sucked into it because it's like you know, again it's all part of. Yeah, can having... I just
1: mention something about that so listeners sure, understand? Of course. Yeah. So the the big question was, well, what with all of these uh, soldiers, this is men and women, by the way, who were overseas, we should make note of the fact that in the course of World War II, there were 16 million Americans in in uniform during the course of the war. And people should know that there were only 130 million Americans at the time, I'm pretty sure that's the number, which is to say one of every, what, one of every eight Americans was in uniform. So we've got all these people on the move, they're not home. So first of all, the question was, well, how do these people get to vote if they're not in their home locality? Even more significantly, what if they're overseas? This had not really come up in any significant way before. And the Democrats, and there were then liberal and progressive Republicans as well, they wanted to guarantee that. It was called the GI, the, the, I forget the, the GI bill, but it was not the GI bill that it's famous. It's the vote, basically a bill to guarantee GIs the right to vote. Now, Southern Democrats did not want that to happen because they had done so well in blocking black voting in the South. And now all of a sudden, look, there are 1 million black troops, okay? A good, and there were lots of, of blacks serving in both the Atlantic and the Pacific theaters of the European and the Pacific theater of the war. If all of a sudden these guys who never had a right to vote, had, they had the right, but never had the opportunity, were never allowed to vote, all of a sudden never a right to vote, boy, they're going to they're gonna expect big things after the war. Okay, that's first of all. So the Southern Democrats, they were hostile to any idea of giving GIs the right to vote first. The Republicans were not crazy about the idea because they figured all the GIs are going to vote for FDR. So basically, it was a struggle. Now, generally speaking, it did pass through the Congress, through the House, but it was blocked in various ways in the Senate. Eventually, the votes did take place and GIs were allowed to vote. And that meant that blacks could vote. But it was a real, you're right, it was a real battle. I don't think it was fully resolved, maybe until almost 1944 for that particular yeah, it went, election. It went very,
0: very long. Um, but I, again, I was just fascinated that it, it's a sort of like a, there's a lot of voting rights sort of activism going on now. Uh, yeah. You is, know what? And, and, and this is the, the way book. it's inco- yeah. this is a
1: way it's inco- sort of incorporated into the broader movement. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's, and it is the case that when these black G.I.s came home, they actually went out. To, to mobilize blacks in the South, to, at least they tried to get blacks to register to vote. They came home and said, Hell, we fought for the four freedoms. They would go door to door in the black communities. Hell, we fought overseas for the right for four freedoms and the right to vote. We want you to register. In Georgia, in particular, there was a really significant movement to get blacks to register. I could tell you they registered vast numbers. The problem is that any number of vehicles were used to block the actual exercise of even the registered to be able to vote. You know, it was the poll tax, it was a literacy question, it was thugs basically blocking it, you know, I mean, the Klan and other folks. But this was the beginning of the, literally, I mean, civil rights movement, as most people know, did not suddenly emerge in the 60s. It's rooted in some ways in the 30s and the 40s. And these Black, if you look at the leadership of the civil rights movements in the South, the, the role of veterans is really evident, really evident.
0: Yeah, the other um, aspect I kind of want to talk about, and we can see how this reflects on our current, our current environment, because this is something that um, you sort of track through the book as well, is that although you're always getting reaction, you're getting corporate pushback, capital pushback, uh, you're having trouble getting things through to Congress, you have a recalcitrant or whatever you want to call them um, Supreme Court Who starts striking down Particular aspects of uh, Of these programs But when you look at um, The polling All the different kinds of polling there was Incredibly popular 70-80% uh, Want people to have healthcare yeah, uh, well, Social security right.
1: 85% of them. Well let me be more precise 84% of Americans Somewhere between 83 85 percent of Americans when asked what they wanted to see after the war. And this was polling that the white house commissioned from, uh, the group, I'm forgetting the name of the group, but it was a, a, a polling operation. It was first a,
0: Gallup. I think it was the, one of the first, it wasn't Gallup.
1: the Gallup. It wasn't Gallup. Wasn't Gallup. It was it, it later would become the national opinion research, blah, blah, blah. The, that courted at Princeton at this time. It later moves to, to Michigan, I believe. But the point is that massive polling was done. And, and they asked Americans, what do you want after the war? And, when, and they discovered in 1940, the polling done in 43 into 44 was that Americans wanted it all. They wanted a democratic socialist or more, more to the point, social democratic America. And as we were saying, 84, 85% of Americans wanted national health care. And by the way, if you look closely, they actually asked people what their political affiliation was. It was 95% of Democrats and 75% of Republicans wanted. I mean, can you imagine that? They wa- and by the way, FDR had every intention, if he was able to sign it into law, even back in 1935, of including national health care as part of the Social Security Act. So, yeah, it's astounding. And they wanted everything. They wanted guarantees of, of monies to be able to go to education as far as students were capable of proceeding. They wanted the national health care. They wanted housing programs. Basically, they wanted, you know, guarantee of, of work in order to rebuild the country after the war. I mean, it's a remarkable time.
0: Yeah, let's, uh, before we, before we get really crazy, let's let's talk a little bit about, um, and I noticed you put this in in one of the tweets you sent out, uh, sort of uh, uh, promoting this, uh, this discussion we're having, which I very much appreciate. Um, sort of our current, Failures. Um, we're obviously the the political conditions, uh, you know, foreign policy, the war. Although we have people overseas and we're fighting wars, it's far different than the the, the dynamic that was in, in World War II, of course. Um, but we have popular programs. We have a very reactionary su- Supreme Court. Um, you know, but we, I don't feel like um, the. The effort that you describe in your in, in your book about staying focused, staying grounded, figure and, and just figuring out ways to sell this to the American people, to sell it to the military, to sell it to uh, you know workers of every stripe. I I don't see that happening from the from the highest levels. Like, it, FDR would give you a reason. Like Bernie Sanders gives you a reason. He says, "Look, does somebody not deserve pre-K? Who does somebody not deserve, uh, you know, a vision and dental with their social security? Why don't you just get it at sixty? Does somebody not deserve paid time off? Who doesn't deserve that? But like that's that's one guy. I mean, you know, we have one sort of one. I'll call it a congressional cohort in the House and the Senate
1: that do it, and that's really it. Well, let's 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 not forget. I mean, instead of let's not jump from forty-five to." 2020 let's keep one thing in mind whenever we talk about the state of affairs today because we don't want to let the democrats off any hook and that is we have seen 45 years of class war on working people in this country and that class war which is rooted even deeper into the seventies and forty five years emerges not simply out of the ranks of of republicans you know conservative republicans it also emerges out of the, the Democrats who we have come to know of as neoliberals in the, in the 70s. In fact, in some ways, it's the neoliberals and a Democratic president who really turns his back most aggressively and determinedly against the FDR tradition. And that's Jimmy Carter. I knew it. Okay? I knew you were going to go. I, you knew I, knew I was going to go. There. And I, I, it, 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 I can't tell you, you know, all I have to do is mention Jimmy Carter. The truth about jimmy carter and on twitter and there are people just you know so upset right so upset well jimmy carter literally screwed labor screwed the environmental movement screwed working people generally and basically paved the way to the deregulation the lower taxes on business okay that's the and litter and then licensed volker at the federal reserve to push an agenda that led to unemployment for working people i mean you know truly the democrat jimmy carter is the if you like is the the father of neoliberal democratic politics capital d democratic politics and let us also not forget that that's the same period in which joe biden your former senator our president okay basically became one of the leading voices of neoliberalism in the senate it's in the years that ensued. And what we've seen is this over and over again, this deference to business. Let me tell you that everyone talks about the Malays speech of Jimmy Carter. Forget the Malays speech. They should pay more attention to what he gave as the austerity speech, the byword of neoliberalism. We have to liberate business. OK, we've got to we all have to make we have to make do with less. OK, you know, yeah, you a, a lot of people say, oh, is he's so like he's prophetic. Well, bullshit. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I
0: mean, the, the, the problem and, and it, it, I really didn't uh, grasp this. Probably when you put the seed in my mind and, you know, I still haven't read all of Pearlstein's books. But yeah, I mean, Carter laid the groundwork for it all and basically said, look, this is what it is. There's not much we can do about it. So just sort of like suck it up. Suck and, it up. There you, and, there you go. And, right. and Reagan was like. Oh, I mean, you, we can be cool about it. Like we can kind of be jerks about it. Like you don't have to feel that way about it, but it's the same. There's really no difference in sort of ideas. It's just a different uh, implementation, different face and implementation on the same on austerity. Basically, yeah. As you said.
1: Carter said government can't so- solve all our problems. And, and either Reagan or one of his brightest speech writers said, no, 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 let's go better. Let's do better than that. Government is the problem. How's that? Right. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean seriously speaking, I'm not letting Reagan off of any hook either. But Jimmy Carter is the culprit in the in the original story, okay, and that and the Democrats who deferred to him. But by the way, I mean, let me be clear about it. There was a there was a bill before Congress in 1978 that would have literally, if you like, defanged the Taft Hartley Act of 1947, okay, that so that the door for labor organizing would have been opened. That much would have been opened again. And Carter turned his back. I said, No, no, I'm not going to go there. He he turned his back on that. He turned his back on the consumer movement of Ralph Nader and he turned his back on the environmental movement. And he put all of his initiatives into one, giving Panama Canal back to Panama. Okay. Uh, You know, all very well and good, but that's where he spent his political capital. And by the way, I'll add to that the fact that. That this is the age of stagflation. Workers needed to get organized because the biggest corporations and the smallest companies were hiring labor law firms to bust unions and to, to literally destroy labor as they up and moved first to the south, then to Mexico, then to Malaysia and China. And Carter knew this stuff, but he never Carter never cared. For liberalism he never cared his own family were democrats who hated fdr so you know that there you go with that um and this is the this is by the way i mean biden's story as i said begins then however you know not to you know to be fair is biden actually listened more to bernie than than people i think ever imagined he would yeah i guess my my issue is that i wish um
0: I, i wish it was more of a concerted effort to 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 make the case for this stuff to 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 explain uh to explain universal programs to explain why like we have to have at some point the conversation that uh, you know I was talking about carve outs before and of course F- FDR everybody makes compromises but I think we have to explain why like means testing we can't we should we should look at that uh we should cringe that should be nasty um the only you know if Everybody deserves it, and if you're extremely wealthy, we can always tax you back. And, and that's, that seems like the way to do it, but we, we, we never,
1: ever have that conversation. You know my radical hero is Thomas Paine. Yes, of course. Okay. Thomas Paine wrote a pamphlet, Agrarian Justice, back in 1796-7, right in there, where he actually lays out the first Social Security plan. He laid—it's Thomas Paine is the father of Social Security. And he makes it clear that the payments that would be made to the elderly, which he doesn't call Social Security, he calls them old age pensions, and the payments made to young people that he also called for to enable them to get an education or to set set up a business or to buy land, all of which was to be paid for by taxing the landed rich, he said they should not be, he didn't use the term, but means tested. What he said is, Everyone, when they reach the age of maturity, say 18 or whatever it was at the time, or the age of seniority, that is for what we would call retirement, they should all receive it, whether they need it or not. If they don't want it, once they've received it, they should give it back. Okay, But under no circumstances would anyone be left out. Why? Because you do not want to treat this fundamental economic right As a charity you means test something and you're declaring it a charity okay you're gonna have people the middle class and upper middle class and the rich say well you know we're we're paying taxes to keep these people alive we're giving taxes to give these people dental care whatever whatever it might be joe mansion would refer to that as an entitlement society yeah and as you said before you can tax it back No, it's just outrageous. By the way, I don't like the term entitlement society. They should. Oh, I hate it. it. I mean, I
0: I should have made very clear. I think it's a disgusting way to look at it, because when you when you when you change the when you read about uh, the pillars of, you know, just trying to have a progressive society, trying to give everybody, you know, freedom from fear and want, we could do that. We sure could. Uh, we 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 don't because we don't have those types of conversations because we look at it like, well, we don't just want to give it to you. Well, why not? <laughs> right. Like, why so, not? okay, you don't want to. So you want if you don't want to. If there are people you don't want to give it to,
1: I want you to explain why you don't. Right. That's right. And like, if they say you don't need it, then we'll say they will tax them, tax as them you back. said. But to come back and, and now I unfairly may have taken us away to Thomas Paine and stuff, but there was, by the way, in the 19th century, there was a, a great orator who once said he would never give a speech without mentioning Thomas Paine. I often feel I can never give any kind of conversation or talk without mentioning Paine. Well, let me come back to the thing that you're pushing us towards, and that is the inability of the Biden administration to take another note out of it from FDR's years, and that is how do you mobilize? How do you create enthusiasm for the kinds of things you want to see Congress enact? One thing that FDR really appreciated was this. He knew that newspaper publishers didn't like him. Because like any other corporation, why would you like a guy who's going to tax you? Okay, why would you like a guy who believes that the interests of working people might well trump the interests of business? So So he knew there were editors who might be friendly, but the publishers for whom they worked would not be. He knew there were reporters who more likely would be friendly because they're workers in their own way. And in fact, during those years, they created the I just blanked on the, the newspaper guild. I forgot what it's called, but the Labor Union of Journalists. And which, by the way, Eleanor Roosevelt joined when she started writing a column in the mid 30s. So you had a first lady who was a, un- a labor unionist. Well, FDR knew the best thing. And he was lucky because the technology was theirs was to go directly to the people. And thus began the tradition of fireside chats, where he would get around the publishers, around the the, the corporate owned media, and he would talk directly to the American people. And when he did so, he spoke in a way that encouraged them, encouraged them to push him. Okay, like, I'll never forget, there were letters one can read that were sent to the White House, hundreds of thousands of letters were being sent to the White House in response to these fireside chats. One of the ones I love the most was a letter. This was a bit later in the 1930s by a Southern textile worker who was probably involved in who knows how many strikes trying to win recognition from the corporation that they work for. And he said to FDR something like, you know, I, I just, you know, I'll paraphrase the first part. I just love you. You're the first president to realize that my boss is a son of a bitch. How can you, how, you know, that tells you something. Working class families, white and black, regularly hung FDR's picture somewhere in the house alongside the picture of Jesus. Black families, however much they may not have been able to enjoy all the benefits of the New Deal, started naming their kids Eleanor and Franklin and Roosevelt. So, you know, there's a lot of evidence that what he did is he encouraged them, not just to believe that change was coming, but that they needed to push and involve themselves in the change. He recruited their labors for the New Deal, Civilian Conservation Corps, Works Progress Administration, all all of those initiatives, the Rural Electrification Agency. But he also empowered them and encouraged them to organize and to mobilize. In fact, in 1935, he told his cabinet to go out and encourage housewives to organize who were already beginning to do so in certain places like New York City he wanted the housewives to organize in order to keep business honest in their pricing I mean FDR knew that if you're that there had to be a dialectic between president and the people in fact the way I put it in the book is that FDR had a vision of what America should become in the New Deal working people not only embraced that, they pushed FDR even further or faster than he was probably originally prepared to go. Now, where is Biden and, the, and this administration been? Well, honestly, they are nowhere. I mean, you know, remember that game or, game or TV show, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? I do. Well, where in the world is Kamala Harris? Ask yourself <sighs> that. Where in the world is Marty Walsh, where, who's the labor secretary? Where in the world are these people? They should be out appearing around the country with in the case of Walsh, with labor leaders, in the case of Kamala Harris, with a whole variety of diverse folk to promote the imperative of enacting these infrastructure plans, the one point five. But all the more the three point five trillion dollar plan. In fact, I'd go further than that if you don't mind my getting. I would love you for to go further than that. I I could tell you here's what I don't quite understand. In 1930, I'll start by giving you the example of FDR. In 1938, FDR, he, he had a plan which didn't work of purging the Democratic Party of the worst of the white supremacists in the South. And he, he actually endorsed he endorsed like his own candidates to run against some of these characters. But in 1938 as well, he went down to Georgia, which was ruled, I think it was called the Talmadge, regime. Okay. It was this Southern white family. And he basically said, and I believe Talmadge himself, the governor was on the platform with him. He said something to the effect of, if you believe in feudalism, which by the way, was a stand in word for, if you believe in what this Dixie is all about, this South is all about, then you believe in fascism. He was calling out these Southern white supremacists, right? Well, how about imagine this? As soon as Biden smelled the resistance from Manchin, here's what he he should have, could have done. He could have said, hey Joe, the one Joe could have called the other Joe and said, hey Joe, I'm coming to West Virginia. Bernie's gonna be with me. Because we all know that Bernie could easily win West, would have won West Virginia in the presidential votes if he had won the nomination in 2016 and 2020. I'm coming to West Virginia. I want you to know right now that I am going to say that anyone who opposes these kind, you know, these bills, and you can lay them out, is operating against your interest. Call them out. Or I'll come to West Virginia. You can join me on the platform and endorse what, I, what I'm calling for in Congress. In fact, I'm, I, want you to, I want you to kill the filibuster with Bernie. I mean, in other words, go to the state. Yeah. And bring, force Manchin to choose, are you going to be with me or against me? And I can tell you, the people of West Virginia, Democrats and Republicans alike, they want this infrastructure stuff. And if Manchin is called out, had been called out, he might have had to give way. Now, I can't tell you what Cinema's story is. She's just... She's, she's, a, mind- uh, she's, she's an enigma. She's, she is an enigma. I keep telling people, half-jokingly, that cinema really wants to be in the cinema. Yeah, and her I goal mean, is her
0: Hollywood. It's really something. But I, the only—I mean, there, there's a—I—I—I I, I, I think exactly like you do. I think there should be far more of a of a of a public push and public pressure from all of the. You know, if this is if this is your platform and this is your, uh, you know, your your program. Go out there and sell it. The only I'll go a step further,
1: the, I think. This is a sort of fantasy that I'm going to spin out. My fantasy is the first bill they should have passed, which they couldn't without the support that they needed, was the PRO Act. Yes. Okay. Let workers know you want them to be in the fight. Yeah, we, everyone thought it was so cool because he said... The workers in Bessemer have the same right to organize as any other workers. Well, that's wussy, if you ask me. Yeah,
0: I mean, that's what I was going to say. I mean, there's always this sort of comment towards it. Like, I'm I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic to your cause. That's not true. He should have sent, sent Marty Walsh.
1: He should have sent Marty Walsh down. Okay, he should have shown up himself with Sarah Nelson by his side. Yeah. Okay, I mean, go for it.
0: Go for it. That's yeah, and one of the biggest things, and you mentioned it before, and I think this also uh, applies to Kamala Harris, is uh, they were both senators, and so they're like, well, Joe Manchin's just doing what uh, he's doing, senator stuff, and Cinema's doing in her goofy way, senator stuff, and and they have this they have this undue respect for for the Senate. Yeah, right. And so they don't want to like they don't. It's like they don't want to embarrass these people or something. Yeah, I don't know anybody
1: think you know. I, I used to say people used to say to me, "What would you like to be if you were in politics?" And I would always say, "Senator, US, I, I want to be in the U.S. Senate, right? Not just for the prestige, for the autonomy that it affords—a yeah. six-year term. Okay, it's a—you can stand up and speak your mind. It's a great place. However, let's not let's not worship it too much. It's the same U.S. Senate that produced the likes of Joe McCarthy, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you
0: could the laundry list of terrible senators from uh, con, uh, from the Civil War on uh, is, 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 is quite long. But again, there's this respect for the Senate. I mean, I, I've been I, I can tell you just sort of tangentially related to this. We ran a thing in the Delaware call about abolishing the Senate and, and I'm a big abolish the Senate guy. One of the reasons is the compromise that was made in the Constitutional Convention to create to create a Senate with with two from each state that were that were selected by the state legislatures was a, a, a gunning bedford Jr was a De- another Delawarean brokered that deal, and so we kind of played off that idea. But nothing nothing makes people matter. Even progressive people, I won't even just say liberal liberals mostly, but progressive liberals too. If you if you try to argue about the undemocratic nature of the Senate, just and, and say abolish the Senate. Even just to give room for people to talk about abolishing the filibuster, or firing a parliamentarian, whatever, you're just trying to create room for people to realize that the Senate is, a, is, a, is, an, is an artifact of something very nefarious and very undemocratic and very bad. People lose their fucking mind and you try to explain it to them it's terrible but they I, I don't know i don't know what that is but people have and maybe it goes to what you were saying before when someone said if you could be a politician you would say i'd be a senator cuz that's the that's the greatest one and maybe that's why i don't know but people have a have an esteem for the senate that is the opposite of what it should have based on the history the the rules the arcane nature and just all of the undemocratic
1: aspects. Of well, it. I can tell you this. I, one of the reasons I can tell you this, I, okay, I've been around long enough to tell you that for many years, my presumption was that, that it was the Senate that was the traditionally liberal body because you had these great senators when I was younger, like Hubert Humphrey. Okay. I mean, Bobby Kennedy was in the Senate. Um, look, I, Lyndon Johnson, however much he was a Southerner, watered down civil rights bills. he also made sure the civil rights bills made it through. I mean, had these great these towering figures who went into the U.S Senate and, the, and as in the 60s, even into the 70s, you had some really significant figures. Ever since then, you know, I mean right now if you said to me tell me the senators you like, I'd, I'd beyond Bernie say, you know and I'd pause for a moment yeah Warren, And and Markey and only he only came out as a real progressive this last time he ran in order to slap down that that was it Bobby Kennedy, Jr., whatever his name was, who was was a twerp, actually. Yes, Um, very bad. He was extremely bad. um, You know, and you have to in other words, and there are many others. But the point is that the, the days of the great progressive figures or even great senators, they're gone right now. Yeah, and I guess it's just sort of like a shift. Um, it used to be... Look, the, was- look at the greatest idiot possibly in the whole U.S. Senate is the senator from Wisconsin, Ron Johnson. Uh, that's, your, that's your problem. I know. Yeah, you have a big problem out there. How contradictory can it be that we send, well, to, con- we send to the Senate um, a progressive woman who's a lesbian, in fact, from Wisconsin, and Ron Johnson? I mean, how do you put <laughs> that together? The guy is literally dangerous. Yeah. Well, and that's... that's um-
0: Again, and and the thing that bothers me, and maybe I'll I'll let you I'll give you the last word on sort of bringing this together into this current uh this current time, but you know Roosevelt, although he came from you know aristocracy, um, form, f- formed formed his own ideas. You know he, he was he was a governor. Uh, he was a undersecretary of Navy, uh, but he but he formed his own ideas. Um, what we see in leadership now are, again, two former U.S. senators at the top of the executive branch, uh, and really just people who have been, who have come up through the as you, so eloquently described this sort of neoliberal '70s '80s like resurgence, and I don't, I just don't think they have it. They don't have what it. They don't have. I mean, you you describe what it takes, in here. They don't have what it. They don't have what it takes. And they don't have any proclivity to to do it. I mean, as you said, uh, Biden had, you know, some 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 just uh, I guess you would call them, uh, you know, just middle of the road historians, you know, like the 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 status quo historians. Why isn't I mean, you 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 gave us that story of 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 a Philip Randolph going to the the Oval Office. Has has Sarah Nelson been in the Oval Office? I would, I can imagine she,
1: she has, I I can imagine, but,
0: but like, yeah, what's happening? like
1: it should be more publicized. It should be in case case people don't know. Sarah Nelson is the, is the, is the head of the airline flight attendance union and was in fact history maker. When Trump shut down the government, the woman who put together the coalition of airline unions and basically threatened a general strike was Sarah Nelson. And that government shutdown came to an end. Okay. And if I can just mention, and I, I will just mention because this, it'll be available live streamed. If I, if you didn't know this. So I, I retired just about, I retired more than just over a year ago from the university. I'm now professor emeritus at the university of Wisconsin green Bay. And for many, many years I ran, I organized and I founded, I organized and ran a speaker series here at the university. Which I, we really invested a lot of our own time, my wife and I, in, in, in making it possible. Not money, because we didn't have much money, but, but, but we put up people as speakers. And these were prominent folks who fortunately wanted to meet me or I, or we had already met, and I persuaded them to come. You can cut this part out. The point is that the university decided to honor me, besides Professor Emeritus, they would create a speaker series bearing my name. OK, the Harvey J.K. speaker series on the state of democracy. And the first talk will be Tuesday evening, October 26th. And Sarah Nelson is coming out to Green Bay to speak to honor me very kindly. I remember um, when they announced it, uh, I was oh, you did uh, see, I, yeah. I, I did see it. I forgot I to continue to promote it because it's going to it's going to be live and in person kind of thing. But it will be live streamed, I'm told.
0: Yeah, I, I when I when I saw that, um, I, I I knew that that was just not only a great uh, honor for you um, to be sort of memorialized in that speaker series. Yeah, don't call also, memorial. Don't say oh, memorial. Sorry. That would make you uh, me. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry. I didn't mean that. Yeah, I didn't mean that. Wrong word. Wrong word. It's just honored, honored. 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 Yes, <laughs> but but to to um, to have uh, one of the uh, most active, most effective. Uh, labor leaders in the country um give the, the 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 first uh the first remarks i think is is extremely cool um so yeah. i was i i was pretty happy for you on that one thank have you to say. thank you yeah i mean there's not a lot of um not a lot of hope on that side on like uh, you know with the executive branch and, and and relating it to what fdr was able to do but let's let's wrap it up with a little bit of of hope
1: um there are. I'll give you the hope. There's been a
0: wave of strikes. There's been yes. a wave
1: of strikes. Thank Is you. Is that what you were going to say? Well, I was going to say that and something related to it. First okay. of all, the media done a very utterly disgustingly inadequate job of covering this resurgence of labor activism and organizing and striking. Okay, And this tells us that, that American workers have finally reached, they're up against the wall, you might say. The pandemic was that that force that really drove it. We had the makings of this for some time. It didn't come out of nowhere. You had the fight for 15. You had the teacher strikes in West Virginia and other states. You had the the organizing of of a, a more dynamic labor union for teachers in Chicago. I mean, we could name the various examples. And even though it failed, the union organizing drive down in Alabama really did send a signal to the rest of the country. And I can only imagine, I I don't know for a fact, but I'm pretty sure that elsewhere in the Amazon jungle that others are organizing too. And last but not least, one of my favorite students graduated five, six years ago, is an or became an organizer with the National Nurses Union. And I can tell you she has a 1,000 batting average in, in in the organizing that she is help to lead around the country at hospitals. It's astounding these the nurses, these women are ready to organize and if necessary to act. okay so it's we're living in very, very promising times. The problem is of course that the Republicans may win back the house in 2022. they could possibly win back the presidency. However, that kind of organizing, if workers are organized, Then there's only so many things that the Republicans will dare to do. That's it is really important. As as you may have seen on Twitter, I keep saying, no labor, no left. No left or labor, no democracy. So this is that really important moment. The other thing I was gonna say is if perhaps, if perhaps Joe Biden is a closet listener to Highlands Bunker then just maybe he'll have heard you and I, you and me, speak of FDR, okay? And it will awaken in him the sense of, even if I can't get exactly what I want, if I can get my team of the cabinet, the Congress, if I can get these folks out to agitate in favor of a liberal, social democratic, progressive, I don't care what you want to call it, agenda, then maybe we can make enough of an impression on working people that they'll bother to turn out to vote in 2022 and vote Democratic. In other words, it's not like he had to win everything. He had to show that he was prepared to empower people. That's, to me, the key thing. That's what FDR did. I mean, Labor was ready to support FDR because he had signed in 1933 an act that had afforded them the opportunity to organize. The later NLRA is when he made what he had done in 1933 all the more effective with with the leadership and assistance of Robert Wagner. And that's what's missing in this administration. Okay, not just vision. The vision is Bernie's in some ways, that the better part of it, but they're lacking the uh, understanding that they have to trust their fellow citizens. They have to empower and encourage, even incite their fellow citizens. You know, I think it was Frederick Douglass. Nothing is won without a struggle. Professor
0: Harvey, JK. Thank you so much. Um, I have to tell you that, uh, I got this from the library, but everyone should go out and buy this. Uh, it's the fight for four, for the four freedoms. Uh, what made FDR and the greatest generation truly great. Um, uh, Left is best.